0: Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Well, we are in the third week of a Spirit-led church series. We took a break for two weeks, uh, one for RVL that came and spoke to us, and uh, last week was uh, Family Commitment Sunday, and so we're back on. It's game day. There's a big game today. I wore red in support of the Super Bowl, thank you, Sam. Just thought I'd play it safe, and you know, whoever wins wins. Uh, just before we began it, we we got the pleasure of accidentally eating with a family last Sunday, who uh, is from from a Church of Christ tradition, and just was uh, expressing such uh, feeling so refreshed that they stumbled upon a a church of Christ that is doing a series in the Holy Spirit. We did this last fall. We're continuing this in a kind of a different angle, spirit-led church, Um, because that's just not something that has come, uh, come easily to us. And one of those reasons, I think, is because God gives us many capacities with which to love him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Strength and sometimes one of these four can be turned up, and we're uh, we're hyper developed in a certain area. For us, I think that's been the mind, and it's not a bad thing. But we receive everything through the mind, and so when we talk about the Holy Spirit and the antenna of our mind are up, and everything else is turned down, um, we we miss a lot because of the, some of these underdeveloped. Uh, receptors that we have in the form of the spirit and the heart. And so today I just, I encourage you, uh, there, there's some things that cannot be received with the mind, um, some mysterious and rich and deep things of God. Uh, as we go through this series, just an encouragement to listen with all the faculties that God has given us. Let's begin with 1 John three sixteen through 18. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Let us show the truth by our actions. A spirit-led church, week one, worships exuberantly. A spirit-led church, week two, shows empathy. A spirit-led church uh, today engages the world. What does it look like to engage the world? One of the questions I get most often when I share my my somewhat curious job title, I don't know if anybody in the room knows exactly what, you might know what I do, but what my title is, uh, missional life minister. So missional life, what does that mean is the question I get. If I don't want to really get involved in the conversation, I'll say, well, I do community ministries at, at Monterey Church of Christ, but technically that's my title. And I think the most obvious implication, missional life of this title is, is that we all have a job to do, but there's something underneath that. It's not just we have a job to do. It means we have a duty to understand what God is actually up to and to find our role in that. It means we're instruments, both on the days we recognize it, feel like we know what we're doing, and on the days that we don't, we have no idea, we are God's ambassadors. We are his hands and feet. So we have a responsibility to understand what it is God is doing in the world. So what we want to ask today is, what does it mean to be spirit-led into the world? While we kind of default to thinking about being spirit-led as waiting for these divine whispers in any situation or waiting on some huge calling on my life that's going to lead me to exactly the thing I was created to do, Jesus and the Scriptures actually call us first to something much more fundamental to being spirit-led. And I could use the word obedience, but today I'm going to use the word imitation. The Spirit calls us to imitation. If you read through the book of John, uh, you may notice, as I do when I read, the, the echoes of this idea that Jesus repeats three or four times, and we'll use uh, out of chapter 5, verse 19, for, for an example. He says this. He gave them an answer to this uh, conversation that's going on. Very truly, I tell you, the Son of God can do nothing by himself. He can only do, What? What he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Now, this is curious to me. I can only do what I see the Father doing. It's as if Jesus would not be doing the same thing if his eyes were not on God. And because his eyes are on God, it's almost as if he's constrained to doing the work of God, to only doing what he sees God doing. We'll come back to this verse in a second. I want to take that concept for a second. And as I imagined this, and maybe you've experienced this, this yourself, I hope, hopefully we have, the nearer we are to God, the more naturally, the more subconsciously, the more you know frictionlessly we find ourselves in the places that God is, seeing with eyes God has, doing the things God will be doing. So I think of a magnet, so a magnet, it's so cool. Like we lose the amazing, like what in the world is going on with these things? Because we know what a magnet does, but right in front of our very eyes, there's this invisible field. It's called a magnetic field that bears a certain influence over the area around it. Right? So we all know um, if you have a metal object near a magnet, um, That magnet bears no influence over this object until what? Until it gets closer and closer to that magnetic field. And when it's a little close, it may bear some influence on the magnet, uh, on the metal. In fact, there's a force, there's a pull that we probably can't see happening because it's not strong enough yet to draw that object in. But as we get closer and closer, ultimately, if the magnet's strong enough and if the object is submissive enough, uh, what happens? The object s- submits to the power of the magnet. I was wondering what the largest magnet in the world is, and this, uh, there's you know, debates on types and kinds and things, but here's a picture of uh, one of the largest magnets in the world connected to the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Raise your hand if you've heard the Large Hadron Collider before. Oh, you guys are so... There's more nerds in this room than I thought, and <laughs> We are friends already. I won't tell you what the Large Hadron Collider does, but uh, I will tell you, as, as an example, <clears throat> it's a magnet. If you lifted up your keys out of your pocket right now, are your keys going to be sucked out of your hand and halfway across the earth to the Hadron Collider? They won't, because even the most powerful magnet in the world has, has limits. <clears throat> And the spirit uh, is like that. Not that God has these geographical boundaries or limits to his influence all over creation, but until we cross over this invisible boundary of our own wills, of submission, of dying to ourselves, of this daily death we're called to practice, we will almost never be moved by the things that are moving God. It's funny because often we want God to tell us what the Spirit is prompting without ever actually being near enough to the Spirit to be moved by its force. When you begin to submit to the Spirit's field, to the kingdom, I mean, Jesus says uses the language of entering the kingdom of God, of receiving the kingdom of God. You can't serve two masters and you have to put one thing down to, to be able to be drawn in by the other. When you begin to do that, we're pulled and we're moved simply by by virtue of our heart's proximity to him. Our very lives start to be motivated and animated by the things that motivate and animate God. James 4, 8 is draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me. When? When you seek me with all of your mind, when you seek me with all of your heart. And so Jesus' claim, I can only do what I see my Father doing, it's just, it just, it just baffles me. And it makes me wonder, what if this simply isn't a phenomenon Jesus experienced? What if this is just simply a truth that's woven into the fabric of creation? That the further I am from God, I'm going to be clueless and without desire to do the things he's doing. But as I draw near to him, my eyes are open. My life is captured and taken by the things that capture and take God's. So the second thing that stands out about this claim Jesus, Jesus made in John 5 is, is this, um, that God is, is doing something. He could have used any number of descriptions there, but I can only do what I see the Father doing. He could have been more fluffy. You know, I, I can only f- feel what I feel God feeling. We kind of do that sometimes, right? Or uh, my character is going to be that which God's character is. But he, he firmly plants God in the realm of activity, of, of action, of doing. All <clears throat> He equated all his actions with his own actions in the flesh, and we know Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, these are your, your key chapters uh, for, for completely aligning God with the Son of God in, in representation, in behavior, in belief, in pattern, in love. All of his actions in the flesh, Jesus is claiming, mirror what God is doing, the verb doing. Not simply what God's commandments and expectations are, but that God is leading the way in the world, that God is on the move, and therefore Jesus is compelled to be on the move as well as we should. So what exactly is God doing? I think he's he's healing. He's inviting. He's reconciling. He's opening eyes. He's comforting. He's calling out injustice. He's teaching. He's enjoying. He's resting. God is not the white bearded monarch looking down from his high throne, shaking his finger at us, directing traffic down on earth. He's the God who follows the abused and forgotten into the desert in Genesis 16, where he sees Hagar. He gives her a drink. He's the God who attends to widows and orphans and immigrants throughout the Old Testament before Jesus was a blip on anyone's radar. He's the voice of the prophets who constantly call out the rich for trampling on the poor. What exactly is God doing? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus shows us God's agenda. When he inaugurates his ministry with these words in Luke 4, Jesus stands up, remember, in the synagogue in Nazareth and unrolls the Isaiah scroll and reads this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God is proclaiming good news to the poor. It's a poor, physically poor and poor in spirit. He's proclaiming recovery Freedom for the prisoners, people literally in prison and people spiritually in chains. Recovery of sight for the blind. He's healing blindness, literal blindness and spiritual blindness. He's doing all of that. He's bringing new creation. And therefore, Jesus is too. And therefore, we are too. He's extending our circles of accountability far and wide and I think God is constantly challenging our definition of who is our neighbor. So Richard Beck, not to be confused with our uh, illustrious Jim Beck. Richard Beck is an ACU. He's a professor of psychology. And he shares this really helpful concept to me of, of our moral circles. So he says, our moral, our moral circle, we all have a moral circle. It's basically the operating system we carry with us at all times. that answers the question... Who is my neighbor? At any given moment, we have some invisible boundary, not too dissimilar from the magnet. We have some invisible ba- boundary that helps us determine, without having to think too much subconsciously, who, is, who am I accountable for their well-being? Who am I going to have compassion on? And who sits outside uh, my realm of accountability? So we draw these invisible circles Um, factors could involve things like family. Family is typically in our moral circle. You know, geography, neighborhoods, cities, uh, states. You know, Joey's not from Texas. He's not in my moral circle. Uh, You know, (laughs) nations, right? Church affiliations, political parties, obviously, skin colors, socioeconomics, who is in my moral circle and who is out. And the only difference in insiders and outsiders to Jesus is, if you're trying to, you know, a litmus test for you, we don't feel the need to lift a finger to change anything for the situation of those that are outside our moral circle. We react differently to those inside and out. So <clears throat> Richard Beck gives uh, gives the example, simple example, daily example of you go to a restaurant. It's a very busy restaurant. Uh, the staff is a little chaotic. You get your seat. Uh, and your waiter comes up to attend to you, and he's he's a little he's a little inattentive. Uh, he's he's slow. Uh, your food doesn't arrive on time. You're thirsty. The water's empty. But this waiter is actually a friend, and so your response to him is is grace. He's like, oh, you you are you are super stressed out, but once you take care of these tables, we'll be okay. But we can imagine a different scenario where the only difference is. The waiter is not a friend. And instead of exhibiting grace, we may get agitated a little more quickly. We might kind of begin to dehumanize them. We don't look them in the eye. We forget this waiter is is somebody's son. It's maybe somebody's father. And the only difference, if they're not in our moral circle, just an example to show how moral circles work. Jesus would say, you know, he did say, So what if you were patient with the waiter you knew? Everybody does that. Even the pagans do that. Everybody loves those they love. And I appreciate the clarity about these moral circles because it's exactly how humanity lives. While God's moral circle extends to the ends of the earth, ours remains small. We love circles, but occasionally we can look over at Jesus and we see that his lines have been completely erased, and it is unsettling. Our, our moral circles cannot possibly extend as far as God's, and to the end of our lives, I'm convinced, I will constantly be unsettled by Jesus trying to erase the next outer boundary. That I, but, but Jesus, I've come so far. I used to, and now I, that's good. Do what you see God doing, erase that next boundary. Pharisees took issue with this, but also so did his disciples. Jesus, why are you talking to that Samaritan woman? And my question is, what was Jesus doing in Samaria anyway? And when was the last time that a Jewish rabbi had set foot in Samaria? Hey, Jesus, we'll take care of that blind beggar over there at the gate shouting at you to get your attention. And they, they rebuked him, this man who just wanted to see Because blind beggars aren't in the moral circles of fishermen. Jesus, we'll clear out those children. We know you're too important. Your time is too valuable. And in this case, Jesus actually informs them that those they had rebuked actually have a greater standing in the kingdom than they do. And if you want to enter the kingdom, you need to become like them. Be careful who you exclude. You may be the one God excludes. This goes beyond the Gospels. Peter, who has spent years with Jesus is so struggling with Gentiles being included in the promises of God. And it took a vision from heaven in Acts 10 for him to finally say, oh, it, it is true. It is true. For the church in Rome, Paul wrote an entire book making God's case to the Jews and Gentiles that they're all part of one family. And yet for 2,000 years, the church, our church, has continued to draw Circles upon circles, even within the body of Christ, of who's in our moral circle and who's out. Even though, as early as Genesis 12, God was promising Abraham his moral circles and extend to the ends of the earth. A spirit led church constantly critiques its moral circle. But the end of the story is God will continue extending our circles of accountability and challenging our definition of neighbor until it includes the whole world. Where is the Spirit calling you that the world says, like Jesus' disciples said, why why are you going there? Why would you go there? And my prayer is that the Spirit is leading us as individuals and as a church to engage not just those we love, but those we're being called to love and simply don't know yet. I praise doing that for you. I praise doing that for us as a church, and that we are leading the way in putting on display what God is doing in the world. So, in summary, we're going to have uh, some more folks come and share with us. Lean in to the places God is leaning into Himself. Not just obedience, but obedience through imitation. Imitate Him, draw near to Him so you can see what He is doing. And expand your moral circle. Recognize when it's too small, no matter how the world pushes back, and they will. All of us are on this journey. Uh, We can't help being on this journey when we're disciples of God and when we're really, really uh, submitting to him and asking what he wants us to do. And there are endless stories in this church of ways that folks have uh, leaned into the things they saw God doing. Um, We want to introduce to you uh, Glenn and Gwen Martin and they're going to share with us this morning. So to introduce them, please turn your attention to the screens.
1: (laughs) I'm Glenn Martin. This is my wife, Gwen. Um, We've been married uh, going on 10 years. Uh, I'm a farmer. I farm out in Terry and Gaines County.
2: I am a lawyer. I practice here in Lubbock and um, we live out in Terry County, we commute in, and between us we have five kids, um, two daughters-in-law, a son-in-law, and then five grandchildren, and we're expecting more sometime. Not now, just sometime.
1: started coming here after Gwen and I got married, and I just, I I love this church. Even when Aaron talks, it's pretty good. Hey, you better make us look
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I appreciated the reverse compliment, but I, we got the last laugh. So.
2: I always make sure you know when Sam has turned off the camera, okay? It <laughs> tends to keep rolling.
0: So, for those of you who don't know uh, Glenn and Wynn, uh, they're very special people to me for a number of reasons. Uh, I won't get into... To all that they coordinate uh, the divorce care ministry here at Monterey, so in specific ways um, as you can imagine any anytime you find yourself or you see somebody in a uh, a, a role like that, you can imagine there 's a backstory to it there 's reasons that they landed where they are. We just wanted to invite them today to kind of share how that came about uh, in in the world of engaging our world. So tell us a little bit about your background.
2: Well, I have actually been a member here at Monterey for 20 years. This will be the 20th year. And um, came here from a sister congregation in 2000, immediately got involved in uh, small groups, small group leaders, uh, young married class leaders. I mean, teaching uh, children's classes. I mean, I'm I was involved and um, I grew up uh, going to church three times a week, gospel meetings, remember those, don't forget those, um, youth group, went to a Christian college. Uh, in my mind, I checked the boxes thinking that, you know, this is this is it, you know, and that sort of thing. And in about 2006, 2007, I, I did this first time, too. Um, my world started crumbling. Now, the beauty of it was I was here at Monterey, and I had great elders, ministers, friends, the dements, the stars, Sean and Christy Collins, who have left. And they all, they walked with me. They walked beside me. But the one thing I did not have was somebody in the trenches walking with me who knew all of these emotions and fears and feelings and, and stuff like that. So just like it's in the current bulletin, January 2009, after 20 years of marriage, I walked into my first divorce care class that fortunately was being held
1: here at Monterey. Your turn. My backstory. My backstory is just a little bit different than that. Um, I grew up in a a very small, ultra-conservative church of Christ. Our uh, moral circle was very small. Um, Church for me, spiritual life for me was making sure that we did church right, making sure I went to the right church, and trying to live the most righteous life I could. Um, And that that was pretty tough. You know, when you're living that kind of life, you're thinking, I hope I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to get to heaven by the skin of my teeth if I do. Hmm. So that was... How I grew up. In my thirties, I started questioning all that. Just kind of, I mean, just thinking and, and, and praying. God, there's got to be more because you know I would read verses where Jesus said, "Give, give somebody who's thirsty a cup of water. Uh, get, give the hungry food. Clothe those who are naked. And visit those in prison." And I, we weren't doing that. We were, but we were keeping the church pure. But we weren't doing that stuff, you know. And so, you know, I just kept thinking there's got to be more. And so I had this friend move in to Wellman, and he started twisting my arm. He just wouldn't leave me alone. He said, go do Kairos. I was like, I don't even know what that is. He said, well, it's prison ministry. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. But he kept on. I'd see him at a basketball game. I'd be sitting up in the bleachers. He'd say, Glenn, you going to do kairos? <laughs> so finally I said, I'm going to do kairos. Just, Jim, just leave me alone. I'll do it. So st- started working my way towards that. And it was it was really hard because I was getting way out of my comfort zone. And uh, but you know what? I went into prison and my socks were blown off because well, I I saw Jesus working. I saw what the power of Jesus was really about. It wasn't about church. And, you know, guess who was in there doing the work? You know, I I grew up all my life hearing about how you got to do the works and do all this and that's what saved you. You know what? It was Baptist in there. there. There was Baptist. There was Methodist. There was... There was Catholic, there there was even some of you liberal Church of Christ people in there. (laughs) And I was like, it just opened my eyes up to a new world, and my chains started coming off. I, I realized I was not equipped to judge whether or not you're going to heaven, and that was just so freeing. So then I found myself in a position where I was going through a divorce, and you talk about rocking somebody's world, that, that rocked rock my world. I didn't know what in the world was happening. I didn't know what to do. The church I was in had no way of helping me. I mean, they didn't have the tools. And, in fact, they just sat and watched it burn down. And I, I don't blame them for that. It's just the way it was. And I, I had made these new friends. And, and, and so my, I, the Spirit had led me to be open. And... So one day I'm driving down 82nd Street and God shows me a sign. No, really, <laughs> he shows me a sign. It's right out here. <clears throat> this marquee, it said divorce care. And I was thinking, you know what, I need that. I need to go to something like that. Because it was either divorce care or chances are. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, just, I decided divorce care is where I need to be. And so... He doesn't get off the
2: farm very much, can
0: you tell? Gwen, you said something Wednesday. I didn't mention this in first service, but you said, uh, you know, I was already in a church where I wasn't made to feel shame, but you said I didn't want to call the church office and ask about divorce care. I just, you needed a place where rejection, hurt, betrayal, Sorrow, not being able to pull yourself out of bed, being stuck, a place that people could, and that's a very specific place for you. So, you guys are, you know, chapter two. uh, Well, you're probably chapter 62, but in this, in today, chapter two, you guys coordinated divorce care ministry. How did that come about?
2: Well, I mean, going through it, um, the first time I started, there were only three women in the class. Um, we all had similar situations, 20 years of marriage, 30, 33. I mean, you think, well, after after that amount of time, surely you've, you've figured it out. But as we said earlier, divorce does not discriminate. It doesn't matter how many years, how short your marriage, how long your marriage. Um, socioeconomic, education, church, I mean, it, it's here. It's here, you know, 50% of our marriages end in divorce. And so I went through that class and what it gave me was hope. It gave me some tools to just spend time focusing on me. An hour and a half, childcare was provided. I got to focus on me. I, get, I got to be with other people experiencing the same thing. Uh, just that community. We all need community. And, um, I mean, so then I... At that point, we went year-round, and I thought, hey, I kind of like this. I became a divorce care groupie, I guess, and <laughs> and, and so just moved into the summer, and, and that summer was when uh, Jeff, oh my gosh,
0: <laughs> Glenn. <laughs> You'll have to know, like Wednesday when we were meeting, like they just talk about he said, "You're not going to call me Jeff on Sunday, are you?" And and I was like, "Well, that's so awkward." But this is like a running joke all the time. In first service today, I said, "Jeff," I said. So thank you. Jeff is her.
1: Jeff is her ex. If you didn't get that part.
2: If you die first, I'm going to put on your grave, not Jeff. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay.
0: Do you mean to take over or are you uh, no. A-
2: no, I'm not to pun it to him because all of a sudden he came into class and so you can
0: So what brought you here today? Yeah. Spirit moving you guys to find yourself in this position. So so when I went into divorce
1: care, it was to pick up chicks. <laughs> not really. Not really. It, it, I went to divorce care because I needed tools. I needed tools to help me to deal with this stuff. And and when we walked in, there was people that were going through the exact same thing. And, you know, they couldn't judge me. I I, I had all this shame, this guilt. Um, um, I was feeling pain and anger and depression. I mean, I I sunk down in depression really bad. and, And... I went into this class and found out well all those things are normal and so it it gave me tools to work through those things and to deal with that stuff and to move on um, to uh, be able to fix to help start fixing what I have done wrong and you know it takes two people to, to make a marriage work and it takes two people to break it up well no, it just takes one. But anyway, um, so that that's why I'm so passionate about divorce care because there's people walking through that. There may be people here this morning walking through it right now, and you don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do. And this class gives those tools. And, and for us to be able to just, I mean, that, that's kind of how God has led us to to be um, Minister to people that have walked through that are walking through the same thing that we walk through and To be able to help them to deal with What they're facing
0: Would you guys say to use the language of this morning that you already used? Moral circle. Would you say your moral circle? um, Extended the moment you experienced Divorce to all of a sudden it wraps around a group of folks that never before had you had your arms been that wide
1: you know I was thinking about this Um, God God hates divorce right but he used divorce in my life to take something that was broken and turn it into something really beautiful (laughs) really beautiful see (laughs) no really really, it was I was so broken and and, and so, yeah. yeah. And then God has taken that from that point on, and the circle has just grown bigger and bigger. And uh, it, it was all spirit-led, I, I have to believe, because there's no way that a farmer from that background would wind up going to church here, mm-hmm. leading divorce care. No way that we would have ever met and got married if it hadn't been spirit.
0: Amen. So. Yeah. Anything else you guys want to share as we wrap up?
2: Yeah, one other thing I wanted to share that... Um you know, divorce will forever change you. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it's, that life altering uh, thing. What it doesn't have to do is define you.
0: Yeah, Let's thank Glenn and Gwen for sharing today.
1: <laughs> Aaron, I have to say, I'm really glad you're wearing red
0: and not a pink shirt or pink pants. That would be really embarrassing. <laughs> Sam Souter. Joey Drumright. On that note, let's close with the scripture that we open with, 1 John 3.16-18, through 18, uh, with the lenses that we have we've shared today. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. And I would ask you to consider what it means to give up your life for your brother and sister. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Let us show the truth by our actions. song uh, the worship team introduced today is uh, called A Move. Words begin with mountains are still being moved. Strongholds are still being loosed we need a move in the chorus we are here for you come and do what you do may i suggest this morning that god is moving but maybe the move is ours to draw near to him to be close enough to him that we can become one unified his heart his his mind everything in exactly the way that he's bringing healing to the world. May that be, may we engage our world, may we be led by the Spirit. Let's stand and sing.